Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Leon Ashworth, Director of First Contracts, which provides a range of building, fabric, and facility services. Leon, hello. Good morning, Matthew. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, let's start there. This has had a, a massive effect on uh, the economy, on businesses, on society. How has it affected First Contracts? Well, uh, it, it's had an impact. Um, the, we, we first started feeling the effects of uh, COVID pre-lockdown. The uh, volume of work that uh, we were receiving uh, dropped significantly. Actually, before um, before we was asked to stay at home and, and to be locked away, um, the, the industry that we work in uh, probably started to feel it. Um, so the, the, the volume of work started to slow down. We um, we, we could feel that because of the, the way that we operate our business. We've got a CAPM system that gives us live data. So. We, we sort of had a slight heads up on what was coming, um, but I don't think anybody was prepared for what was going to happen. Um, the volume of work dropped drastically to probably 85, 90% less of the, to what we were used to receiving. Uh, and that was from the middle of March, well, from the start of March uh, through April and through the majority of May as well. Um, the industry that we work in, we do have to provide uh, 24 hour 365 service to our clients so there was still an amount of work coming in which was probably our saving grace um, we rapidly cut back um, the staff and the, the, the management teams and the office staff and used the furlough system um, to, to the maximum uh, but we still did have to negotiate keeping a amount of people in, in the business even though the work was significantly lower we still have to provide a service to the, to the clients that we have um, in terms of the office we actually closed our office on the 19th of march which i think was the thursday before um the government asked us to mm. um we, we have a mixed demographic of staff in our office and some some of the some of the guys who work with us were classed as high risk uh, so the, the first thing we wanted to do as a priority was to make sure um, people safe, especially travelling on public transport. Um, we, 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 we really, obviously at the time, there was such a, a, a panic in the air and with what was happening and nobody really knew how to deal with it. I think we, we the first thing we did was make sure our people were sent home. We, um, from a business point of view, um, myself and my business partner very quickly started to look at ways we could still deliver the service whilst working from home. Um, all the all the managers, all the staff were sent home with laptops and with screens. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily, the the system that we use is, is you can manage it from anywhere in the world, and we can see what's going on. Um, the furlough scheme scheme did did um, benefit us massively, um, but we like I said, the reduced workforce and the skeleton crew uh, had to work that little bit harder as well. And it, and the it was a rough time, uh, and it was uh, a lot of tough decisions had to be made. Uh, and the, the one, the, you have got to look for positives, and you've got to look, try and look for silver linings in this. Uh, and the, the character of the people that we 
we have working for us. Um, we're turning around to pretty much everything within the business mm. to, to make sure that we move through this. Um, you know, nothing short of exceptional to prefer. Um, That's we, fantastic we to hear. Had, yeah, uh, we had great support from our, our health and safety and HR consultants as well, who kept us bang up to date with everything that was legal and everything that we had to do to keep us sort of safe as well. So, um, yeah, it was it, it's it's been tough, but we've we've managed to get through the worst of it, hopefully. Naturally. And now, of course, every week on the podcast, we like to address a, a different topical question. And this okay. week, uh, we're discussing what a difference a decade makes, reflections on the evolution of the office of the 2010s. Now, yeah. let's forget about the last few months. Uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to completely ignore the COVID situation for, for the purposes of this question. Okay. How has the workplace changed in the past decade? And where do you see uh, the workplace going to in the 2020s? Okay. Um, I think in, in, in the industry that, that we work in, um, it's definitely changed. Uh, I think a big thing that, that many, many people have uh, learned really quickly, uh, especially I'm trying not to think about what's happened recently, but is the, uh, is the use of technology. Um, mm. ten, 10 years ago, if I'd have been saying to my field engineers, you're going to have a, uh, a tablet. And on that tablet, you're going to have three different uh, apps. And on those apps, you'll have your health and safety. You'll have your, uh, your work for the day. You'll have your time sheets. You'll have uh, your training. Uh, you'll also have um, to, be able to be able to communicate with our clients via these. Uh, that would have been, that even over 10 years ago, I don't think that would have uh, been something any of us would have dreamt of. The, the, the other thing uh, in our industry, safety has definitely changed. Um, it, it, it's number one priority and number two priority, I think, for for all businesses these days in in, in the building industry. Um, and I think I think generally the management attitudes and the way that, that people manage uh, offices and manage teams have, have changed as well. And there's a much more um, open, uh, engaging uh, management style out there rather than going back to you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was in the, specifically in the, in the building industry, there was a lot of, of the I say you do sort of environment, but it, 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 I think the environment in general is, is a lot better. And I think a lot of companies do now buy into that, both in the, the office and out on the field as well. Well, it'd certainly be interesting to see where we end up in a decade's time. Yeah. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, there, there, I think there can be many, many types of leaders uh, as such, but I, um, I like to think of a leader as somebody who can be uh, inspirational uh, to the in the way that they act and the way they speak and go out about their business and that uh, consistently. Um, the lead, when, I, when I think back to leaders uh, that, that I've been involved in, I think people who are honest and integ- have got the integrity um, are people you always tend to look up to. Um, and I think accountability is a big thing as well. So it's, it's well and good being a, being a leader of a, uh, of a, of a, even a different department or of a company or a business, but, um, the accountability of being part of the structure and working within the structure and being part of the team is, um, is, is what, what a good leader is. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? <laughs> um, well, yeah, you, you, may, you may need to ask the people I work with, but um, I, I think uh, we, 
I'm relatively uh, I'm relatively a youngish kind of man, and I think I've learned a great deal over the last ten years. And I think my leadership style, um, particularly, is I am try to be the voice of the business, and um, I like to be able to inspire the people who, who work with us, um, not just not just our our staff, but our supply chain as well, to try and buy into to where we're trying to go as a company uh, and, and engage the people with the company's vision. Um, we are very, we're very people oriented uh, within within our company, and um, I think being good, good communicators and um, being honest as much as as much as possible as often as possible is, is great. But we try to uh, identify future leaders um, and get set targets and objectives for the people who work with us. Uh, and as part part of our company's goal and company's vision is to, for, for individuals to have their own vision and their own goal as well. Um, and so, so collectively, um, that, that's the way we're trying. We we're trying to push the business forward. Now, of course, leadership uh, comes in many different guises, but uh, we know it's a learned behavior. So how would you say that your leadership uh, style developed? Did you have a particular role model or were you shaped more by circumstance? Um, I'd, I'd like to think it's a collective, really, of, of, of not only my, my working life experience, but um, experiences away from work. Um, I, I want to look back at the people I've worked with in the past, and I, I always try and pull the positive, uh, good influences uh, out of everyone I've worked with. Um, and then, then away from work, I've, I've, I've got a, a very strong family network with strong characters around me, uh, my grandparents, parents. Um, and then I, I, I was also involved in sport for quite a long time, um, and I look around at the people who, who led me on the field and who, who led the specific clubs that I was involved in. And I've tried to take uh, a bit of an influence off, off as many people as I possibly can. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for First Contracts? Um, we, we're feeling this. We're feeling the green, the green shoots coming through now from, from COVID. Um, and we, we want to quickly get back on the path we were on before uh, coronavirus hit. Um, and I think, and I'm confident that that can happen. Um, we will have to keep an eye on the economy and we'll have to keep an eye on how, how these things will um, affect our clients. But um, there's going to be a, a mixed bag of, of how we work, uh, how we um, come into contact with our clients and, you know, there will be a hybrid way of running the business now where people will work more remotely, people will, will work slightly from home. Um, but I think we want to get back to having those engagements with people as well. Um, so, yeah, confident we'll be, we'll be okay. I'm confident that we can move on. But it's certainly put us in a place where we need to start doing a little bit of scenario planning and, and trying to make sure that if anything like this comes down the line, again, we, we are, we're a little bit more informed and a little bit more... Uh, ready to be robust to get through it. Well, Leon, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program. It would be a pleasure to have you back on the show at some point in the near future. But for now, Leon, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Leon Ashworth, director of First Contracts. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. 
real pleasure to be here. Thank you. It, the pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, 
very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, 
I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb 
uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out 
that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, Mm -hmm. and potentially a a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, We need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's got to be the lords one right that sh- sh- of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.